This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Ian Skellard. He's the co-founder of the quillandpad.com website, as well as the executive producer of a film about watchmaking called Making Time. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much, Ariel. Glad to be here. I um, am so happy to have you on the show. Early on when I restarted podcasting and I brought back myself through Superlative, you know, I've been podcasting since 2010. You were one of the people that I wanted to have on the show, but I really wanted to figure out what the show is about because I actually believe that a conversation with you um, has to have a lot of thought. Let me explain that. Ian is one of the original watch enthusiasts that decided to make his career out of it. You lived in Switzerland for many years. You're not, you're not natively uh, Swiss, but you really said, I love this thing and I want to dedicate my life to it. And you were one of the inspirations for me to do something similar, right? Like I, I, I liked watches coming at it from a different angle than you, but you sort of proved to me and I think a lot of other people that you could do that, that you could take an, an enthusiast perspective and, and make it your career. Um, did, did you see it that way as well? Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of fell into it. I, I, uh, my wife is Swiss. I'm, I'm actually Australian. Um, I, I was living in the UK and moved to Switzerland when we got married and then um, was living in a small village, um, could, could barely speak French and didn't know many people and ended up getting a computer. Well, my, my wife brought home an old work computer and this was, you know, with, with dial-up, no, no broadband or anything like that. And also pre-Google, I don't even know how we found anything on the internet, but um, I, I did end up, um, you know, f- finding the internet and started to see advertisements for a Chopard watch um, in the newspaper each day. And after okay. a few months, I thought, oh, it's a nice-looking watch. And this was one of the first LUCs. It's like late 90s when this came out? When was this? Le- late 90s, m- maybe around 2000. Okay. And, and uh, eventually I thought, oh, I wonder how much that costs. So I, I had a look and came across the purists. Because there weren't many people talking about that, and saw that this watch was about four or five thousand dollars, and I had no idea a watch could cost for you know a watch without diamonds could cost four or five thousand dollars. So first of all, I just thought, well, forget that. That's way out of my budget, Um, and I just forgot about it. But over the next few days, I started thinking, well, why would a watch cost thousands of dollars? So I went back to the purists um, and just started reading, you know, and reading what people were posting about. And the main attraction for me wasn't so much that I had an interest in watches, was that all of a sudden I was in a world of interesting, intelligent people that, that spoke English. So rather than feel a bit cut off in my remote little Swiss village, I now felt back joined up to the world. And to be honest, if they were passionate about fixing dishwashing machines, I probably would have fallen into that. 
But I became passionately involved in the purist and eventually became a moderator there. And then, and also because I didn't know anything about the overview of watches, I was brand new to it. Um, I gravitated towards the independents. For me, for me, they seemed to be more interesting. And, you know, I really didn't know how to judge them according to, you know, how big they were or anything. I had no idea. And then through the independents, I met a, a serious British watch collector who was planning to come to, the, to Switzerland. So I said, well, stay with me for a few days and we'll go and visit a lot of independents. And at this time, Jean hadn't been around for long with his own brand. Um, he was buying, he'd ordered a watch from Daniel Roth, one of his two-minute tourbillons. Uh, he was picking up a Dufour Simplicity. And so we went around and visited all these people, and, and I just thought people like Jean and Dufour and Daniel Roth, they were just normal Swiss watchmakers. And, and, and so I thought that was the, you know, the base standard kind of thing, that everyone was like that. And then as I started to learn a little bit more, I realized these were really, you know, watchmaking gods. So I, I started writing a few things for the purist, and then that was seen by magazines, uh, by IW magazine. So I started writing for them regularly, uh, eventually became their Swiss correspondent. And then because the independents, you know, they had no marketing, they had no money, they, you know, they could barely sell a watch. I started writing press releases and things like this for them. And then eventually had a small communication marketing business for basically focused on independents. And at one stage, I, I was like the voice behind, and social media was taking off then as well. And the, the internet forums like the Purist and Time Zone, they were really the first social media. So, so once Facebook and eventually Twitter and those started to take off, to me, they were just extensions of what I already knew. Um, and I was much more of an online journalist than print. Um, even though I was writing for magazines, you know, the, it, it was online. But it was my life. Yeah. I want to add some context here because I think that you talk about such an important era. Not only is Ian really crucial in getting many of these independents off the ground from a communication perspective, but you were also very fortunate to be there at a time and a place where this sort of independent watchmaking was uh, being renewed as an art form and as a business model, still sort of a golden age that sort of went for, I don't know, maybe about, you know, 20 years or something like that from the mid-90s to maybe about the uh, 2012 or so. Around then, it sort of started to change. But there was this sort of golden era of these high-end independents. And you were just sort of right smack dab in the middle. You stumbled upon it. And, of course, you sort of, um, it hooked you, as it did me in a very similar way when I got curious about watches and went online and noticed this world I didn't know about and just started reading and reading and consuming and then eventually participating like you did. But you, you, you sort of get hooked. But I just, I want to not gloss over the fact that in a lot of ways, you are, you are the voice. You, you are responsible for how they communicated, what they said. You advised them. Talk a little bit more about that period of time in the early 2000s when these brands were opening up and, and, and you know, really asserting themselves to the world. And you were basically facilitating that. Talk about that period more. Well, one of the big things was happening, not only 
where the independents, they're starting to become more and more of them, websites were really just starting to become popular. I mean, when when I started, no no big brand or any commercial commercial brand wanted a website. That was for websites for 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 either porn or cheap things. Websites weren't a place for for a brand. And then slowly websites became more important. And then because brands wanted to control them, and including big brands, they would tended to be flash websites, were like very heavy video websites. And this was at a time with very slow, very slow internet. And I quickly realized that you know the websites needed to be easier; they shouldn't be flash. And so I started developing websites for independents and websites how I wanted to use them as a watch enthusiast, the kind of information I wanted to access, and also as a journalist. I didn't want to have to register to be able to download press releases and photos. You know, I just thought, why don't you make all of that freely accessible? But that took a long time. But the great thing about a website is for for everyone around the world, they've got no idea if Overwork and at the time that I met them, it was two people. They have no idea if Overwork is a tiny little startup brand or, you know, something like Rolex or Patek. And so websites really became a, you know, a, an opportunity for these independents. Yeah, it really made- It was a new kind of democratic storefront because yes, it exactly. looked the same if you're Rolex or Overwork. Yes, exactly. Of course, the thing that they were lacking was- you know, any kind of marketing or advert, you know, they had no money. And and really, it's really only been the last few years um, independence have, have really started to take off. Why did they trust you? You know, th- there's a, a tendency of ca- of characterizing a lot of this with personality being secretive, um, being uh, wanting to safeguard secrets and, and their the way their know-how. They don't tend to trust a lot of people. You are not Swiss, you're an Australian, obviously you, you did speak French, so you had a leg up there, uh, but you are, you are in a sense a foreign entity. What was it about your style, your personality, or maybe your timing that made it that they trusted you? Because I think that's a crucial element here. If you, if you were anyone else, maybe, you wouldn't have been able to do what you did because they wouldn't have opened their arms to you, but they did. Why, why, why in your opinion, was that? As they say in real estate, location, location, location. <laughs> um, okay, so you were there, you were there. Uh, I was there. That 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 not only opened the door to uh, writing for magazines because at this time, in independence, you know, magazines one weren't that interested because they weren't advertising, so they weren't paying for the magazines. But as as there were more independents and they were making, you know, very interesting watches, not just round watches with three hands. Magazines became more interested, and I happened to be the one. You know, there weren't many English language journalists, uh, you know, and I was really just a budding, budding journalist. But because I was there, I found very quickly, and this is not just in watchmaking, but when you meet somebody the first time, or you go and visit a brand or a watchmaker, you know that that's, you know, you're just saying hello. They've got no idea. You know, you might spend an hour or sometimes I'd spend an afternoon with them and then go away. 
But then as I'd think about what, you know, what they were doing, I would often have more questions. So a few days later or the next week, I'd go back again. And I quickly found when you went back again, you, you nearly went back like an old friend, especially after two or three times. And so it was the fact that I was there and seeing them so regularly. And of course, and they were sharing, I was overhearing lots and lots of secrets and right, and they quickly realized that, you know, I wasn't publishing it, you know, such and such got drunk or fell over or, or did, did this, you know, I was, you know, I was respecting their privacy. Um, so it was really just access. And there is a lot of the drunk stuff and the funny stories. And I think it's because you and a lot of, you know, our peers are gentlemen most of that hasn't got us. Sometimes it does, and we know who those characters are. But I mean, I think that was sort of the thing. Like you had a politeness to you. You were they felt like you were there to help them because you were excited about what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of suspicion around media. Like I'm not a trained journalist, right? Like I never claimed to be. I just sort of fell into it. But there's always this thing is like, you're gonna print this story. I'm like, my point is to get people excited about buying watches. It's not to be a gossip column, even though I know that exists. But I always found that there was always that fear of us being gossip mongers or people like us being gossip mongers, right? Yes. Although like you, you know, the independents, I, I love them. And it's not just independents. I mean, that's, that's my focus. But, you know, there are certainly big brands. You know, I, I appreciate, you know, superlative watchmaking. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I didn't think many people knew about them. So Yes, I, I wasn't looking for a big audience. I, I'm not a trained journalist either, as anyone that's probably read anything I've ever written. But, you know, I just wanted to share, you know, my passion and, and what I've learning with, with other people. So let's let's go more about the voice and the story, because these brands are often their worst enemy when it comes to marketing. They don't really say a lot of the sexy storytelling. Talk a little bit about taking what they were doing and transforming it into something interesting because storytelling is so much of at least what I remember you doing, taking these things that were dense and weird and, and strange and they didn't really always speak about them in a straightforward way and, and to explain at the very least what they're doing. Where did you learn the skills to do that? How crucial do you think that was? And I think what's also important is to say is did the people, the generation you handed off to do you think they're doing it as good as you are? Maybe worse? Maybe better? I'd love your opinions on how how the brands have taken it since uh, since you started with them. Well, it, it hasn't finished yet, but my experience with most brand press releases, they they're just patting themselves on the back. They're basically they're basically saying we are great. This is a great watch. You know, trust us. You know, when we tell you it's absolutely fantastic. Whereas I always wanted to know, just tell me, tell me about the watch and let me make up my own opinion. If the watch is fantastic, give me the details because if, if, I, if I convince myself that it's a fantastic watch, that's a lot more powerful than you expecting me to believe you. Um, and when I started writing press releases for brands, one of the first reactions I used to get was, don't you like the watch? Um, because I was never saying it's, you know, I wasn't using all of these superlative adjectives everywhere. Uh, I, 
I said, yes, I like it, but you just have to explain about the watch. You know, the, the people will make up their own minds. You know, they're, they're, they're smart enough. Um, but one of the important things I learned very early on was if I wrote an article about a complicated watch or even if it had a complicated mechanism and my text was complicated, when I was starting out, I just thought that's because the watch is so complicated. But then I realized that my text or explanations are complicated because I don't understand it enough. Um, that that was like a, a change in my mindset that I realized my job is actually to be able to take, you know, whatever it is interesting about these watches and be able to explain it in a way that anybody should be able to understand. And you can only do that if you really do to a fairly deep level, depending how complicated the watch is, you've got to understand it well to be able to break it down into simple things that people can understand. I've read many of your press releases, uh, not all of them, but probably the majority of them. And I always find it interesting because there's some moments where you really dive deep and other times where you just sort of generally explain the thing. And I always wonder, is like, did they tell him anything? Does he, you know, like, because I, I know that I've been in your position. I haven't done as much, but I've written press releases and things like that. And I know what you have to work with. And it's it's not a lot. It's, it's really not. It, it's you have to, it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get to be like, so why did you make this? Uh, and why did you think this was a good idea? And how does this work? Um, what are some of the things you go through? Do you have a, a watchmaker that you consult with maybe? Uh, do, I mean, obviously it depends on the brand, but how much do they tell you? How much how much can you get out of them so that you can tell the technical story? Because we've all been in those meetings where they just don't say very much. Um, I, I pull it out of them. I just keep talking and talking because you're right. Okay. Um, but by the time a watch is launched or near to be launched, the, the watchmaker or the brand, they've probably, you know, it's probably been in production for the last year or various other things. So they're probably moving on to their next watch. You know, the, the watch that's actually launching is is old for them. Um, and often, you know, they've either forgotten things or, you know, what's interesting to them isn't necessarily interesting to other people. But I, I just keep pulling, pulling information. You're right. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth. And I will talk to their watchmakers. You know, I will just get as much information as I can um, because it's obvious when you read a, a poor press release, it's just fluff. Um, and the reason it's just fluff is they've started with nothing. You know, whereas I would make sure I just have pages and pages of notes or, you know, hours of recordings of information and then just start to put that information together. Um, because if you start with with very little, there's no way you you can you can do much at all except write fluff. So so give a little bit more advice to the other PR people because I think what you're you're saying in substance is, you know, don't accept the first round of explanation they have, like actually interview them ideally charge enough that you can dedicate the time to that because if you don't actually get the story, which requires an enormous deal of effort, 
what you're left writing is a bunch of fluff. I think that's the word you said, and I agree. Um, sometimes I use the word flowery language. It's often a whole lot of nothing. But the joke in this industry, if you aren't someone that's read these things, is that a lot of these brands put out these fancy press releases that are entirely superficial. Like they're made to look pretty and that's about it. Once you start reading them, they're ugly. Uh, and only value they really have is the technical specifications. And you hope that they're complete and you hope that they're accurate because beyond that, there's not that much value to it other than a pretty looking package. And that's the problem. This industry across the board makes things that look pretty. No doubt. If you're in the luxury industry, you know how to make stuff which is pretty. But do you make something pretty that works well? Ah, now that's the hard part. And that's what I think people like you and me try to distinguish in the marketplace, right? Yes. Well, and one of one of the advantages or one of the reasons that, that I was able to do this was I was generally interested in the watches and the watchmakers. So, you know, before me being a journalist and before writing press releases, etc., I'm generally interested in the process. So I want to understand it. And also being Australian and my personality, um, I have no trouble making people uncomfortable if necessary, but just pulling information out of them. And if I can't get it from somebody, I will say, you know, please find me a watchmaker or somebody else that I can get this information from. So what do you think is the most good that you've done when it comes to the storytelling component? Because you've helped brands explain the message, tell stories, ideally actually think of themselves as brands. I I'm, I'm, I believe that that's also part of the wisdom you've instilled upon them. But, you know, there, there must be some element of pride that you have. What are the, you the most proud of when it comes to uh, taking care of that element of their businesses and their lives? I've never felt particularly proud of it. Um, <laughs> we should. No one else um, is doing no, it. No, I've, you know, I've never felt particularly proud of it, but you know, I, I was around at the start and I did help many, many small brands um, to to start and, and even survive, you know, by helping their marketing. I mean, many of them, even even – Philippe Dufour, who's now selling watch, you know, his watches sell for a million or, you know, more than a million dollars. He he was struggling for decades just to pay his bills. You know, it probably wasn't the, until the last five, five or maybe 10 years maximum that I'm sure he started to feel financially comfortable. Be, before that, he, he was struggling. Um, Gronfeld's, Irvwerk, Global Forsey, all of these brands. Um, and, and we have to remember to, to be an independent watchmaker or launch an independent brand, you are normally an excellent watchmaker. Um, but that doesn't mean you've got much business sense or any kind of marketing and communication skills. And really, to have a successful brand, even a successful small brand, you need to be superb, world-class in either you're a businessman, watchmaker, or communication and marketing. But if you're superb in one, and for most of them, it, it's watchmaking, you need to be very competent in, in at least another one, ideally business, so, so you can keep going. And you need to know enough about marketing 
to know what you don't know and to be able to recognize, you know, somebody that can help you with the skills you don't, because otherwise it's like the blind leading the blind. If if you don't know anything, anyone can some can come to you and say, oh, you know, I'm a communication expert. You know, I know how to write fluff. And that's what that's what happens a lot. They have been duped. I guess that's probably the correct word by a bunch of people in media claiming they can do a bunch of things. And um, a lot of those people haven't. And why is that? Why, why is it? Is, is it just luxury in business world, you know, worldwide? Because there seems to be some type of attraction of trying to like deceive luxury brands. And then they get very defensive as a result, right? Uh, I don't think they're actually being duped. I think all luxury brands, even outside the world of, of watches, all tended to just write fluff. And, and you know, no, nobody knew any better. And so the smaller brands, they were just copying what the bigger brands were doing. And and, and, so, and, and yeah. do you remember, um, and, until internet blogs and forums came around, most articles that anybody uh, read were in magazines. They tended not to be very long because it's expensive. So, you know, often they didn't go into a lot of detail or or if there was a few pages and, and quite a thorough report, it was generally because the brand had bought the, you know, the cover page advertising. And so it was a, it was a paid for article. So, you know, the, the internet has certainly opened up, you know, if, even though... <laughs> And I and I think with reason, uh, a lot of readers think that, you know, m- most of what they read is too positive, that we're not critical enough. Um, but certainly, you know, with magazines, that was even less, that was even less so. I think one of the main reasons, I really, and I include myself here, we're not critical enough is because we are not dispassionate observers, you know, I, I love th- this world. I think, yeah, that's an interesting point because I think a lot of times we've been accused of not doing enough hard testing and things like that. I'm like, people don't understand, like, I'm not set up. It's like a watch movement comparison factory, you know, like laboratory that's able to like figure this stuff out. Like we are enthusiasts. We know a lot. We, we've seen an awful lot. We more or less understand how watches work, but we're not like micro mechanical engineers telling you like this system is efficient or not. We can say, well, a lot of people are using it and this is what the watchmakers say. And I understand that to a degree people want to know these things. And I love that the hobby um, can go that deep. And I want to sort of reemphasize the point you're making about the information, how traditionally magazines either didn't say much at all or really never had a critical sense. The internet made it not only possible, but the, the norm that opinions and deeper information were available everywhere. And luxury brands, the larger ones until this point, were so used to controlling everything that this era of the opinion, the enthusiast, um, was shocking to them. And it's only recently that they sort of got on board. I I would say for most of my career and, and probably a big chunk of yours, a lot of the mainstream brands were actively hostile to the notion that people were having this independent conversation about them and would do anything possible to not support it or make it go away and only reluctantly would sort of be a part of it and only if they thought they could sort of control the tone. Um, talk talk a little bit about your perceptions there. I, I, I agree totally. It, it used to be a, a brand or a watchmaker 
you know, would see some negative point um, or, you know, somebody brings up something, they found a little bit of dust under, um, you know, a photograph that was magnified a hundred times of the back of a movement um, and they just weren't used to that kind of thing and they, and they would have heart attacks about it. Uh, however, my general philosophy about it was, you know, you, you cannot please everybody. And even for myself, if, if I'm, you know, planning to go, you know, on holiday somewhere and I'm researching on TripAdvisor, you know, about a hotel, I'm very suspicious if I don't read at least one or two reviews of people that have had, a, you know, an incredibly hard time. Um, that, that gives me more confidence that, you know, the, the 80 or 90% of the good reviews are actually honest. And I, and I feel the same for watches, you know. We've all got opinions. Uh, you know, there are some shapes, colors, styles, you know, <laughs> I like somebody else doesn't like. I don't like, I don't like, I wouldn't even call it criticism. There are just trolls out there that just like to, you know, say, you know, things with no basis. But if, if somebody says, you know, they think that the case is too too big or, you know, for their small risks, to me, that, that's a valid criticism and that should, you know, it's got it. They've got every right to be putting that forward. We we got to put this into context here because I'm I'm trying to at least compare a little bit because now in the social media age, there's nothing that isn't too shocking, right? Like because there's absolutely no control on say Instagram, people could make a, a humorous image that th they could go as far as you like, and there's nothing that brands can do about it. But they just have been forced to accept that status quo right now, even though they still absolutely hate it. What Ian's talking about, which I think is kind of interesting, is that 15 years ago, <clears throat> they would have had a total, you know, just a, 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 I don't know, like a traumatic episode because someone said that maybe a dial was ugly. Or like you said, the watch is too big or too small or too thick or something like that. They would be like, oh, you know, they, they would lose sleep over this, this fact. And now the type of stuff which is said about them <clears throat> is obscene practically much yes. of the time. And there's nothing they can do about it. And they've been forced into submission. But they were what they would call us about and what they would give us a hard time about is the most, like, minuscule, probably not even actually negative stuff. And they would give us a hard time about it. And, and the Internet at large just forced them to abandon that as much as, as, much as possible. You, you've also got to remember that until recently, and when I say recently, maybe the last 10 years, brands had no contact or very little contact with, with collect, the, the people that were buying their watches. The, the information was, you know, generally going out with magazines. So unless the magazine was publishing, you know, letters to the editor, you know, there was, there was very little feedback the brand was getting about their watches. And the watches, you know, the clients for the brand were the retailers and distributors. That you know, so there was there was that barrier between the brand and collectors. A big change that has happened over the last decades are that the brands now are much more in touch with the collectors, um, because also you know the brands when they would go to Basel World or the SEHH now Watches and Wonders. Again, they generally were only talking to journalists that, that were there getting information. They, you know, the journalists weren't going to these big watch fairs, you know, to give brands 
feedback or criticism. They were just there to get information about their latest watches. The internet has certainly opened things up. Do you miss anything about those times? I mean, there were there were strange times. There were definitely more innocent times. I, I think what I miss about it is the fact that social media got the mainstream into watches, right? Like you had everybody knowing what they what they were that they were expensive. There was just so much more visibility of what people were wearing. There was something nice about when it was really off the radar. What do you miss about those times, if anything? Uh, no, no, nothing, nothing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started with internet forums with the purists. So my, my introduction was, you know, honest feedback. Pe- people said what they, you know, what they wanted and what they felt. So that was my introduction to the world. Uh, I used to see, you know, how the world was outside of that, but. I was very comfortable in, you know, in, in the in the world. I was there at the start of the world we're in now. Um, I'm just I'm just happy that it's that it's grown and grown rather than faded faded away. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayou, the founder of Bayou Watches. My family has been living in the heart of the Swiss Watch Valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bayou is one of the best kept secrets here in Switzerland adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we released a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for under 5,000 US dollars, the biggest regional newspaper came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families and our prices start at 500 US dollars. I invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking. Visit BA111OD.com. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vile in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vile harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. What do you think the industry is going to do with this new importance of messaging? I mean, people like you and me have pounded into their head the importance of having a brand. You can't just have a great product. You have to have a good brand, which is the personality around the story. You got to do that. And branding takes constant messaging, which means marketing, spending, and things like that. Have they figured it out yet? You know, do they figure, or is it still the type of thing where they just, they really just want to invest in the product and and the brand is always going to be an an annoying uh, side thing? No, I, I I think they've figured it out yet. I'm not saying that they're doing everything correctly yet, but you know certainly for the big brands, you know, with you know they've all been big professional groups now that they know best practices. Even the little independents now, they're all talking to each other. You know, most of them are friends and helping each other out. You know, they do know. You know, they're having a better idea of what works and what doesn't. But you're right, one of the first things when I would meet a watchmaker planning to launch a watch, the first question I would ask them is, are you launching a watch or are you launching a brand? 
because you really have to think with your first watch, assuming that you're planning that this will be your only watch, it's going to be launching your brand as well. And that's something that often they've given no thought to at the very beginning. They're just excited to finally, you know, be finished their first watch. Now, I want to change tack a little bit here to brands going from being tiny operations to small businesses, to medium businesses. And you've seen that transition. You've seen it happen different ways. What are some of your thoughts about seeing brands grow? What are some of the good things that can happen, some of the bad things? Some brands like Orwork has decidedly stayed pretty small. Others have have grown, been acquired at times, things like that. What what, what are some of the thoughts you have about the, the growth trajectory of these brands? Well, well for me personally, the the biggest thing, well, until the last few years, they were growing, most of them were growing slowly, if if at all. Um, and until five years ago, most of the smaller brands were just trying to survive. Um, and many of them, you know, d- didn't. There have been many small brands that have gone by the wayside. It, it's really just been the last few years that things have really taken off for them. Anything I have ever learned about marketing or business, um, Max Busser to, has, has taught me more than I could, you know, ever, ever absorb. When I said you have to be, you know, either a good watchmaker or a good businessman or a good marketer, and if you're lucky, you know, you might have two of those things, Max is good at all three. Okay, he's not a watchmaker, but he's a, a very talented creator. But he is also an excellent businessman and an excellent communicator. And even when he was uh, in charge of Harry Winston's watch division, that, that was a big prestigious brand. He had Harry Winston as one of the first uh, brands with, you know, paying for a forum on the purist. Um, he, he really saw things early on. Felix Baumgartner has always known you know, what he wanted to do, how many people he wanted to work with, um, and he is stuck with that through thick and thin. Many of the smaller brands look to... And work, just so everyone... Yeah, not sorry, everyone knows where... <laughs> yes, over. And, but but lots, of the, lots of the smaller independents, they, they look to a Crivier or to Jean, you know, that, that they, want, they want to grow into a brand, you know, but, but there are... There's a wide range. Um, I've recently I've spent a lot of time with Vincent Berard. Uh, sorry, not Vincent Berard. Uh, Vincent Dupre. He's a single watchmaker making his own, you know, handmade watch, just like uh, Daniel Roth is is still doing and has been doing over the last ten years. You know, Philip Dufour is just working alone, um, or now with his daughter. So, so you still have watchmakers that are just working like that, some in very small teams, some growing into brands. Um, what they do have to be careful of is running a large brand. It, you know, it, it's time-consuming, in fact, all-encompassing, just running the brand. If, if you're a watchmaker, you, you will stop being a watchmaker and you will be a manager. And, you know, hopefully. You know, if it's going to be a successful brand, you better be a good manager. You know, I, I've got nothing against these brands doing, you know, growing as as long as there's still a wide range of these smaller brands around. 
Is there a size that they maybe should be that's sort of the right size to stay independent enough but have enough structure that they have the ability to create the brand, the manager, the watchmaker, and have different people do those things? Because I... I'm not saying there's one size or one business model that makes sense for everyone, but there's definitely too big and there's definitely too small, I think. I don't think there's too small. And I don't think there's a size that works because being larger just means you've got more overheads. And the big problem is not when things are going well, because the larger you are, you'll be breaking in more money. The big problem is when when there are slowdowns, as there always are, there will always be, you know, whether it's next year or the following year, there will be a recession coming and there will be two or three years, things will be more difficult. I don't think it's so much the size that matters, it's the demand. Because if you've got a waiting list of two years for making, you know, for people getting your watches, you can afford to ride out a two-year recession. So, it, the problem is not the size, but having enough of a buffer there. And, and to have that buffer, you need to have the communication or your um, you know, knowledge in the collector community um, and be making watches that people want. So you've got that kind of demand. I actually think having a two or three year wait list is very healthy. It can be. I mean, one of the interesting things that I've always found, which is the watchmaker's dilemma, at least when it comes to watchmaking, is how do you spend your time between fulfilling orders and experimenting with new designs, developing new products, you know, tweaking and things like that? Because, you know, maybe you can get a sense of how much time do I spend at the bench versus how much time do I spend on emails, on the phones and, and stuff like that and business meetings. But when it comes to at the bench, I think it's so hard for them because some of them fall into, I'll just keep making the same thing over and over. And some of them just persistently want to do new stuff. I feel like it's so rare to see someone who's created a structure where they can kind of do both things at the same time well. Yes, uh, I agree. And, th and that really depends. I mean, if you want to be doing more than one thing, if you want to be doing more than basically just making the same watch over and over again for 10 years or more, um, that's the kind of thing you can do if you're alone, it, or you know you will be, you will be alone doing that. Um, but if you want to be having the time to develop the next watch um, and going out meeting a lot more collectors, etc., to make sure you've got demand for these next watches, you need to start to have a couple of other watchmakers, you know, making the watches while you're developing other things. And that's a very challenging thing because they know it. It's not. It's not easy to do. The moment you start to add stakeholders to a business, it becomes complicated. Whether it's someone who's just an employee, they're going to demand a salary no matter if things are good or bad, or if they're accepting less of a salary and they're a, a part owner, or maybe they're even investing, there's a whole different set of expectations. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things that a watchmaker can fall into is then needing to be in essence, uh, indebted to a variety of people and having to fulfill all those things while being that creative person that they, they dreamed about being. And that's, that's such a tough place for them to be, right? Yes, although I don't, think, I don't think employees are that much, well, I'm sure they are very much, a, very much a problem, but the hardest things that I used to see with independence when, when they were struggling and 
when they were trying to build a, a, a larger brand or even a mid-sized brand, they wouldn't have enough money, so they would get outside investors. And I saw time and time again, it rarely worked getting outside investors because no matter how sweet everything looked at the beginning, the outside investor is looking for a return on their money, whereas the watchmaker just wants the money to be able to, that takes that pressure off him to, you know, to make watches and develop new watches. Um, It's swallowed so many companies, hasn't it? So many great watchmakers. And some of them have bounced around. It's like they can't learn their lesson. They just go from like the same kind of finance situation, just someone else and they would expect the situation to be different, but it's the same thing and they bounce around and there's so many amazing names that I guess through no fault of their own as a technical person, just never really figured out the business model. Maybe they got impatient or maybe they just needed more money that was available and they just wanted it to be done. Um, but you and I have seen this a lot and I guess there's no solution for it, but this, this does happen quite a bit. Well, well, the reason behind all of that was independence for most of their last few decades, have struggled. You know that they haven't been, they haven't sold that many watches. So, and they have thought, oh, the problem is we're not profitable enough because we're not making enough watches. So they would think that if we get outside investment, we'll have the means to be able to make more watches, and have you know, fantasize about having better communication. But to be honest, the market just wasn't there. And until the last few years, no, no matter how big, you know, the market for Rolexes and Audemars Piguet and Jeje Lecoute was, the independents were very much a niche market. You know, the vast majority of even very serious and passionate watch collectors always looked at them as arm's length. You know, what will happen, you know, when they stop? How will I get the watches serviced? You know, that, that they just didn't sell enough watches to make any investment worthwhile. Now, you said a few times that that was sort of the past and that over the last couple of years, it's been very different. We don't know what the future is going to be like, but give a little bit of context. From your perspective, what has been different over the last several years? What is that experience like for the brand's and what is the status quo right now for a lot of them? I think what what changed everything was COVID. I think when, when COVID hit in 2019, you had much of the Western, well, West and Eastern world, but here I'm talking about the world of watch collectors, uh, stuck at home looking at their computer. And you know, with time on their hands, reading more about watches and reading more, you know, the boutiques of clothes. They can't go in and talk to the salesman about, you know, buy this new Rolex or buy this new Patek or whatever. And so they just broadened their outlook and they started to discover, you know, other collectors talking about independence. And because they're just now looking at everybody from what they're reading on the internet, the independents just look to be a little bit more mainstream to them. And they're making more interesting watches because, uh, you know, they don't have to. If if you need to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of watches, you need to be making watches that hundreds of thousands of people are comfortable with 
And that tends to be a round watch with, you know, hands in the middle. If you only need to be selling 10 or 50 watches, you only have to find 10 or 50 people you know, a, a year, uh, depending how many make you're making a year, you know, to, to have a successful business. So what I think has happened was, thanks to COVID, the potential market or the market for the independence grew exponentially. A lot more, a huge amount of collectors that had no interest in independence suddenly thought, wow, you know, I'm happy to, to be buying from independence. And I, so I think the market for independence has grown by five or 10 times. And I think that has likely changed things significantly for the future because if the market has grown five or 10 times, it doesn't matter if there's a recession and their sales drop by, or not their sales, but you know there's two or three times fewer collectors out there buying, they still have a much larger market than they need to survive. So once again, the internet saves the day, right? Because in the early 2000s, the internet allowed the independents to have any platform at all. And now it has made them look, I guess you could say, maybe a little bit bigger than they actually are. And because their products are so distinctive and the internet rewards distinctiveness and showiness or just, you know, boldness, they have by de de facto one. And it's true. Like you think of like, uh, Longines, for example, the majority of their collection is beautiful and elegant and classic, but it's it's also kind of considered boring when you're seeing it online. And then you see some of the like brighter colors or interesting shapes that may have not done well in a traditional retail setting do great for attention getting. And so once again, you know, uh, life by the algorithm online rewards the weird, and that's exactly what the independence sort of evolved to be is weird, right? Yes, yes. Although, again, it it really depends how many watches you need to sell, because it's true when you're weird, you don't need many people um, to like like the watch, but you, you you need to reach the few people that do like weird. But there's not so many. You know, most of us are fairly traditional. You know, even though we I like, love weird, Ian. You uh, know me. Yes, yeah, but, <laughs> but 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 still, you know, most of us, for most, most yes. things in life, are fairly traditional. Even when we think, you know, we're we're a bit weird in some more, you know, we, we we embrace the weird, you know, we we have to be stretched. But you don't you don't quickly go from, you know, liking a round watch to liking an Overk, uh, you know, you have to get used to that or li- liking an MB&F. Um, well, you, here's the thing, and you know this, you tend to like basic when you're first getting into something because you're trying to be safe and that's all you know. But as you spend more time in a hobby and you learn more about the stuff that's out there, you're more confident in your taste and you can choose to like weird knowing that it's abnormal but not bad. And I think that's sort of one of those sort of aficionado things. I I think so. But we also have to remember collectors are motivated by many different things and include including how our friends and and colleagues will appreciate it as well. 
you know, I, I'd much rather if I'm if I'm wearing a watch, um, although it does rarely happen, but depending who I'm with, I, I feel much better about myself if somebody says, oh, nice watch, or that's an interesting watch. Sure. Rather than, it's a wonderful feeling to have your yeah, watch complimented. Rather, rather There's than, few better things. My God, what you know? What's that monstrosity on your wrist? <laughs> That's a different emotion. And now uh, you've done something interesting. You you were the executive producer of a film designed, hopefully, to get more regular people into this hobby. Talk a little bit about the film. Where can you know? In addition to where people can see it, of course. The production of it, you said there were some hard moments. You know, you and I, again, we've tried to produce media that gets regular folks into what we're into, and we try to get them in through the the visuals and the emotions and some of the same things we've done. So I haven't actually even seen it yet, so that's I, I will have to see it, but talk about the film. My wife and I had been watching a Netflix series, and this is over, I don't know, the last decade, probably perhaps longer, Called Chef's Table, and okay, uh, it's, I think it must have run for at least six, maybe eight seasons now. Popular and, show, at Chef's Table, and we we do like occasionally going out to to nice restaurants and good food, but I, I can't say that I'm a passionate foodie, and I'm certainly not passionate enough to be watching five seasons of a series about chefs. And I noticed then the reason I was watching this is because it wasn't about the cooking, it was about the people. And that realization came to me. And I also realized I watch a lot of different subjects I have no interest in. And I and I quickly switch off if I, if I don't like it. But if I watch something through, it's generally because it's about the person. And and that's what got me into watchmaking as well. It wasn't the watches, it's the people. If you like and appreciate the person, you will appreciate their craft. Even if the style of their watch isn't to your taste, you will appreciate what they're doing. And so I was watching uh, about five years ago uh, a chef's table, and, and that just clicked for me. Um, and I thought, I want to make – as a Netflix-type series about watchmakers, but focusing on the people rather than the watchers. And my idea was, because generally I don't feel I'm writing for the general public, I'm generally writing or communicating for people that appreciate watches. And I thought, I want to reach the whole world. I want the whole world to know that this world exists. Uh, you know, I didn't want to sell them on it, but I just wanted them to know that you know, what I've spent the last couple of decades of my life doing, I wanted the world to know uh, that it exists. And I thought this series would be a, a good way to do that. And, but, but of course, and, and I wanted to do it to a very high production level because my interest is in very high-end watchmaking. And if we use the analogy of, pro, you know, YouTube programs about food, I wanted people to, to realize that, you know, we're in the world here of Michelin star chefs, not, not street food. Um, so I wanted it to be very high production value, and I knew it would be expensive. It took me a couple of years um, before I was flying back from Dubai Watch Week 
when I realized that Sudiki, they had a long-term vision because it's a family-owned uh, Dubai-based uh, retailer network sure. in the Middle East. I found, whereas most watch fairs are basically brands selling watches, Dubai Watch Week was really targeted for collectors and and educating collectors. And I thought I call what? I call it a festival. Really, it's a festival yes, for appreciation yeah, I, watches. I, mean, I I loved it. and uh, and and so I thought maybe they would be interested in, in the kind of film. And uh, I I spoke uh, to Hin Siddiqui about it, and not only was she interested, uh, she said she's had the same idea. Um, about Chef's Table to do something similar because she, she realised that it was about the people. So our idea at first was just make a, a short two- to three-minute clip as a proof of concept and then hopefully get Netflix or one of the big streaming platforms to say, oh, yes, we love it, here's a few million dollars. That didn't happen. They said, look, you, you need to have more more people, a, a more diverse range of people, and to to flesh it out. So we we took longer. We went back. We came up with more people to put put in the film. Uh, we we filmed more and more. Went back again, and all of the streaming platforms loved it. But a series is very expensive because it's basically you know at least six episodes of the quality we we were after. Uh, it would have cost many millions of dollars, and right. and they and none of the platforms had any um, viewer analytics about the subject of horology. Even though when they were watching what we'd done, they could see that it it, it should appeal to a, a wider audience. When they put into their algorithms watchmaking or horology, it screened niche. So after- they just had no idea how to sell around it. I had the same issue years ago. People were like, we don't know what advertising to sell around it. We don't know what demographic it appeals to. So no one wants to invest in it. Like they could taste it's appealing, but it didn't fit. You're right. Any other categorization of shows, it was like they couldn't buy it. Yes. And from the very beginning. Um, oh, sorry. So, so my first stroke of luck was uh, partnering with Siddiqui. My second stroke of luck was... About 20 years ago, I'd helped a budding young filmmaker called Kat Mansour and her production team um, make a 10-minute documentary about Philip Dufour and Vianney Halter. And it was called Timepiece. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, and it, it was delving into the people rather than the watchers. And I have no doubt that that also influenced what I wanted to do. Um, and right. Kat Mansour had gone on from when I first met her to become an award-winning producer and director, working with uh, you know Oscar winners, um, producing films. And I convinced her to, to make th- this film for us. And because, of course, I know nothing about making a film. I had this, what, what, in my brain was a fantastic idea, but I, I didn't have the first clue how to realize it. But she, she did. She, she got a great team on board and the film, you know, is really her vision. So, and we knew at the beginning that 
selling the series would be hard. So we always had had it in our minds that we might take what we've done and turn it into a documentary. But we had made five uh, short stories, probably about uh, 10, 10 to 15 minutes long each, five individual stories about five individual watch creators. And those those short clips were better than I could ever dream of. Um, but, you know, people were crying, laughing, people that, you know, had no interest in watches, they all loved loved it. And so we, we, we couldn't sell the series. And so we were recommended make a documentary. And I thought, well, we'll just take what we've filmed and, you know, put that together and, and make a documentary. But, of course, a documentary has to be its own standalone film. It can't just be, you know, one after the other of these fine stories. They have to be cut up and the film has to tell its own story. And the problem is that the more you cut the individual stories up, the less emotionally involved you are in each person, but the, but it all moves much faster and if you leave it into two bigger chunks, it just moves too slowly and it doesn't feel like a coherent film. And that took, uh, and, and I thought we weren't be able to, to, to do it. You know, we were doing edit after edit for more than six months and it was good. Wow. But, but at the beginning, though, these individual stories, they were just fantastic. And the film was very, very, very good. I say good. It was very good, but it just wasn't as emotionally powerful as the individual stories. And I thought, well, I'll just have to accept that. Um, but then uh, we had an edit uh, came up, and after, and this was well after six months of trying, and it looked a bit better. And I thought, wow, okay, that's a little bit better. And then. It just kept getting better and better. And, and eventually, um, you know, it, I, I feel it turned out ex- extremely well. We then tried, uh, we entered in a lot of international film festivals and we had a beautiful letter back from the Sundance Film Festival telling us how much their jury loved it. That Unfortunately, we just missed out, but, you know, they thought the film was fantastic. And I thought, wow, if we if we just missed out on Sundance, you know, we'll surely be selected in another a big film festival. And being selected in a film festival makes it much easier to sell to a broadcaster. But after a, you know eight months or a year, we were shortlisted many times, but we were never selected for a film festival. So then we went back, and we've now got a uh, a distribution agent. And the film will be, uh, they've already uh, sold, the film will be in Canadian cinemas this month, followed by Canadian TV. And uh, we're talking, or the, our agent is talking to quite, quite a number of international uh, TV and streaming channels. So hopefully over the next few months, we'll, we'll have more news. But you, Okay, you so also- there's nowhere... That we can see it quite yet. Yes, yes. If you go to oh, if you go to makingtime.film, it's also available to download and stream. You know, from okay. a, from, from Amazon, iTunes. Uh, there, there's a number of platforms. 
Makingtime.film. Making time, one no, no spaces, makingtime.film. And that also tells you, you know, who's in the film, you know, a little, a little bit about it, and it's got all of the links to download or, or, or stream it. It costs about 4 to $5 to stream it. Sounds like a good value. We're over time, so I guess what I'm going to have to do is say that I, we're going to have to have you back to do more things like talk about Quill and Pad and other topics that we haven't even gotten to. Um, but just as we exit, um, we just talked about the film. Where else can people find you on the internet, Ian? Um, ge- generally, I, I'm at uh, quillandpad.com. Okay. All right. Great. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Ian Skellern. Uh, check out coolandpad.com and the makingtime.film uh, website. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ariel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>